Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. I always wanted to be in charge of my own destiny. I thought this is what I was born to do, you know. You felt that. How did I, you feel that? I Because like my whole body, my whole spirit changes when I'm in the kitchen or when I'm at the farmer's market. Do you think it's possible to get started in a field if you're a little too old and you can't have the time to learn the ABCs of your craft? I really think it is important to learn the basics really well. But I think in these days, imagination is even more important. Wolfgang Puck, I almost don't know how to introduce you because it feels like too small to say the first celebrity chef. That's like very Hollywoodish way to introduce you. You're an inspiration for defining success, not by the business empire you clearly run or, you know, the brand around your name, but you're just love and passion for cooking since the age of 14 or earlier and how you just single-mindedly pursued and expanded that interest in every way, going from apprentice to chef to, to chef in Indianapolis, to LA, to starting restaurants, to expanding those restaurants, to expanding your name into other brands, to building the fastest growing catering empire. You cater the Oscars, you've won all these Michelin awards. You're doing a masterclass right now on cooking, which interweaves, as we were just saying, um, cooking, recipes, business philosophy, and how they're all interconnected. Um, you uh, also cut one of your, you have a hundred or so restaurants, but cut is downtown here in New York City. Uh, so many impressive things you've done, but uh, let's start off. Let's get you down to little Wolfgang Puck at the age of 14. You know what's very interesting? Sometimes, you know, when you don't have the happiest childhood, maybe you have to work harder to become successful and show to your me. It was my stepfather who was totally crazy. I called him a terrorist, really, for the family. And so I could not wait to get out of the house. Like he always told me I was good for nothing because I didn't want to become a carpenter or a mechanic or whatever. And I loved cooking as a kid already because my mother was a chef too. So I cooked with her. And what did you love cooking at the age of 14? I, I, or did I you... think I loved the sweets mostly, more so. But I liked the fried chicken, Wiener schnitzel and things like that, what we made at home. But desserts was really my favorite thing to what, do. What dessert? Well, we made like the Saha torte, we made like a Kugelhopf, like a, a 
vanilla chocolate cake like for Sunday morning. And we made uh, palachinkan, which are thin crepes stuffed with uh, apricot marmalade and a little mm. powder sugar on top. Uh, is that at any of your restaurants? I want yeah. that. We have no. We make one called Kaiserschmarrn, which is like a, a little bit like a pancake, and then you tear it up with raisins in it and everything, and caramelize it with a little sugar. And we used to serve it with a plum or apple compote. You know, like a, a apricot what. A, a compote. A compote okay. is like when you cook the fruits with a little sugar, a little vanilla, a little lemon, and serve one. The Kaiserschmarrn is hot, and the other one is cold. So that's what how we ate at home a lot. We know we didn't have a lot of money. We had meat once a week. That was it. And my mother was an excellent cook. So when she wanted something, she went out in the garden, got some vegetable, made a great vegetable soup, or. In the springtime on Sunday, we had fried chicken because we didn't need all the little roosters. So because they didn't lay any eggs, so uh, would you chop off the head of the chicken? Uh, my grandmother and my mother did. Yeah, <laughs> it was a weird thing them grabbing that thing and just cut the head off. So, so you know, that kind of um, we're gonna go back and forth in time, and I'm gonna go on tangents. Excuse me if I go on too many tangents, but we'll always get back to the the core. But what strikes me in a lot of your discussions about cooking is how much you you work with the environment you're in, the time you're in, like the season you're in. You're very much about the I feel there's a there's a deeper philosophical lesson in your cooking, which is that things are temporary. So some some food exists in the summer, some food exists in the spring, but many restaurants ignore that. They kind of try to block out the 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 ongoing pace of time. And uh -huh. you don't. You very much respect the temporal nature of your ingredients and you work with with what nature delivers you. And it sounds like you learned that at the age of 14. I know, you know, I started out for us, when I grew up in Austria, we had uh, salads or we had peas or we had uh, berries that was for the summertime. You know, in the fall, we had apples and pears and uh, fruit fruits. And then in the wintertime, we had very little. We had a vegetable cellar where we keep the potatoes, carrots and the celery and stuff like that. But we didn't have a lot of fresh vegetables, so my mother made a lot of noodle dishes and things like that. So, so, so in your restaurants, I think you you still often follow that philosophy. Your exactly. Philosophy so in the restaurant, it's the same. Even in life, I, it's my philosophy is to live the moment, not to live in the past and not to live to, in the future. Obviously, you can look in the future, but to live the moment. So, what this means to me is, what is the best at that moment? So, if we if we go to the farmers market or to the fish market, what is the best? You cannot get everything really as it, at its peak all the time. And I was up in school uh, at Harvard, and one guy came up to me and says, you know, the strawberries, and I had strawberries and cheese, and they both tasted like nothing. I said, only a guy like you would eat strawberries in February, I wouldn't even attempt to do that. You know, okay, I, but let me ask you on that. And I'm I'm sorry to interrupt. I'll, I'll I'll try not to. But you have your your frozen foods, which is a, another huge empire. Yeah. Like I feel like you figured out from from your early beginnings as a chef how to expand and scale your brand and and philosophy in every direction. So you have a a frozen foods empire. Yeah. Does that go against the philosophy a little bit? No, I think we all need convenience food. You know, even the richest people will have a pizza at home or have a soup at home, which they don't make. So I think, to me, I want to be the best in each class. So if I want to make a, 
a soup or if I want to make a pizza or if I want to make anything different, I want it to be better than what is out there for sure. So I have a lot of people actually who came uh, to me and say, oh, thank you. You know what? I had nothing at home to eat. I opened your can of soup and it was amazing. In school, a guy was sick in class and then he went to a store to buy some soup. He bought my chicken noodle soup and he bought me the soup and everybody in the, in the class said, oh my God, you are making canned soup too? So I said, yeah, we do different things. So so, so how do you, bec- like I'm assuming you're personally involved in the ingredients and how these things, how do you separate yourself out from like just a generic like Campbell soup or something? Like what makes your frozen foods, frozen foods has a tendency, I think, and this is the last question about yeah. frozen foods. Frozen foods has a tendency, I think, to kind of all just be universally the same, like generic. How do you make yours stand out? Because they do. They're amazing. Yeah. So what I do really is use the best ingredients for that too. For example, if I make the pizza and it has some tomato sauce on it, so I buy the tomatoes in the summer and buy a really ripe one, and then we make the sauce out of that, so that way I can freeze them. I basically just cook them down and then put it in a freezer, so I have them after for the rest of the year, but the flavor is still better than if I would go out now and buy these tomatoes, which were never ripe, you know, which has no flavor, no nothing. So you think a lot of um, companies just kind of take whatever, they ship it around the world, they just take whatever is available then? And- uh, totally, totally. People don't care about the season. You know, these are most of these uh, uh, industries are like commodities. You know, they don't care where the tomatoes come from. They don't care where, how the tomatoes were farmed. You know, we use all organic ingredients. So people don't really care that much. And it's sad to think that in this world, people don't care what they put in their body, you know? And I think to me, that's one of the most important things because if you don't eat right, you know, you might get sick. You never know. Uh, it's the fuel can for, to yeah, live. It should be a good thing for you, you know? We put premium uh, uh, gasoline in our car and then we eat shitty food. Yeah, and so so it seems like by working with what nature gives you, that's all you're kind of saying, it's almost like a conversation you're having with nature when you create this food. So you're kind of like nature's telling you, what I am serving to you, Wolfgang, right now is what will give the body the most energy, as opposed to if you eat a strawberry in February. And that's the ingredient that's the philosophy, that's the ingredients and seasonings you work with in your restaurants. Yeah, to- totally. You know, we use whatever is really in season. And, uh, you know, if we don't have it, we, we don't have it. And people sometimes look at me and say, why you don't have a strawberry pie now? I said, it's it's February, you know, we don't uh, serve strawberries. Now so, we, we wait until in California, we are lucky. We get them in end of March, April already because of the weather. So, but then we get them from the farmer. I have a farmer, Harris Berry. I turned them on to uh, friends of mine. Now they come with me to the farmer's market because uh, they never had strawberries like that. And the thing is, you cannot keep them for two weeks. Now they harvest them in the supermarket. They harvest them and they are not ripe. They are hard like a rock and no flavor. But this one, you can smell them. It's like a totally different experience. What what I love about hearing you speak right now, it's like infectious in the sense that you run, I don't know how many billions dollars worth empire you cater to the Oscars, you're opening up all these restaurants, and yet what you love doing is finding the local farmer, going to the farmer's market, thinking about these ingredients. So this reels us back in time again, 14 years old, you're working in your first kitchen as an apprentice, you do the correct thing and drop out of some stupid high school or whatever and, and start 
really doing what you love, what you care about. Like, how did you grow in your love for this? Because you could have gone in any direction at the well, age of it, 14. It almost went in the wrong direction because I left my home and my father told me always, my stepfather said, oh, you're good for nothing. You're going to come back home anyway. And I said, I will never come home again. And then I left with my little suitcase. It was 50 miles away where it was. At that time, we didn't have telephone or anything. So if I wanted something, I had to write a letter to my mother. And then I get in this different town uh, and I started to work there. And on a Sunday lunch, we ran out of potatoes. And the chef told me, you have to go home. You know, if you're fired, go back home. He and blamed I, you for running out of potatoes? Yeah, yeah. We Why? Out, I was wondering about that because you told the story. Were you supposed to buy the potatoes? No, we. I was supposed to peel them and cook them. That's it. But I was 14 years old and like five foot tall. And uh, so you peeled them too thickly? No. So we ran out of potatoes. Potatoes is a big side dish in, in Austria. You know, yeah. we eat a lot of mashed potatoes and, yeah. and just steamed potatoes and so on. So in the middle of service, there were no more potatoes. So every, the chef freaked out. They... The sous chef came and started screaming at me at the end of service. The chef called me over and said, you're fired. You know, you ran out of potatoes. And I said, I didn't know how much potatoes we need. I just started a month ago. And then I said, I'm not going home. It was really crazy. And so I said, I'm going to kill myself. I'm not going home. So I went on the river. There was a big river with a uh, big high bridge going. So I said, I'm going to just jump in the river. So I was standing for an hour on the bridge looking down and looking down and seeing uh, it was early winter and seeing the ice swimming down the river and some wood things swimming down and I looked and looked and I said, I'm going to jump, I'm going to jump. And then at the end, something lit up in my head and I said, i just going to go back tomorrow and see what happened. So I arrived the next morning in uh, the restaurant and the apprentice who was ahead of me was all excited because he didn't want to clean the kitchen or he didn't want to peel potatoes and onions and everything. He hit me down in the vegetable cellar. And then uh, uh, two weeks later, the chef used to come down in the cellar and sees me sitting on a milk crate down there peeling carrots. And he said, what the heck are you doing here? I fired you. Go home to your mother. I said, I'm not leaving. He grabbed me, tried to pull me physically out. I put, dug in my head and said, I'm not leaving. And then he didn't know what to do. He obviously was like a scene. He was yelling and everything. I'm good for nothing. Go back home. And then uh, at the end, he called the owner of the uh, restaurant and said, you know, I don't know what to do with this kid. I fired him. He should go home to his mother, but he doesn't want to leave. And the owner said, well, maybe, maybe I send him to the other hotel we have and maybe he can start there. So I said, okay, that sounds better. I'm not going home. And then I left and I started to work in the other place, in the other hotel. And there, the chef was a woman. And he, she told me basically, I said, okay, just do your job. Don't make any noise and everything will be fine. And so and then it started to get better. And about a year later, we went uh, to well, school. Well, you started to get better. I feel like there's obviously a lesson in here, which is not only don't kill yourself and go back to work, yeah. but there's some element of perseverance. Like this... Your father told you you were good to not for nothing. The chef then that you yes, looked sir. up to and you were working for and you loved cooking, the chef essentially told you you were good for nothing. Yeah. And what made you inside feel like, okay, there's something in me that wants to cook. You didn't even look for another job in another industry, which you yeah. could have found, yeah. I'm sure, even at the age of 14. Uh, what made you really deep down want to go back? Did you want to prove yourself to your father, to the chef? 
I, I think part of it, it was me. That's what I really wanted to do, even at that young age. And you know, how could you tell? How do people I know? know? Because I had no idea about anything else, maybe, or I didn't uh, think about anything else. Was it I, love for mother? Uh, maybe the love from the mother. And my mother was like an angel. She was amazing. And but I think for me, cooking was it. I didn't want to become a mason or a carpenter or things like that. I used to hate that. That I knew because. My stepfather was building the house by year by year. He added on things. Whenever he had money, he built a little bit on or did something. And he always had me work with him and I hated it. And, so I, and, and yet I can feel like you might, like given what you said, you might have liked that just because again, he's using the ingredients of nature to build you know, and there, and it's but a craft, I didn't like it's a him. I didn't like him. That's so the that problem. <laughs> was the big problem. Yeah. yeah, and I think my mother was amazing, and I loved her, and she loved me, and my grandmother too. So I think it was the connection really I had with her, which made me like what she was doing. And I think that's probably a big uh, reason why I went into cooking. If my father would have been uh, really nice to me and shown me how to do things right instead of yelling at me all day long or make me do things, I think, on purpose that uh, uh, where the other kids were playing football or soccer or something and I had to go and work with him. It was uh, not a good thing. And and and, and once you started um, being essentially the apprentice of the apprentice, uh, you were young enough, you could take the time to learn these extremely basic skills, but very well. Peeling potatoes, peeling carrots, gathering the natural ingredients, from the area or, or yeah. going to the farmer's markets or whatever. Like it, you, you were able to put in this time at a young age when not that many responsibilities were expected from you to learn these basic skills. Do you think it's possible to get started in a field if you're a little too old and you can't have the time to learn the ABCs of your craft? I really think it is important to learn the basics really well. But I think in these days, imagination is even more important. And I went to... After I did my apprenticeship, I went to France. And at that time, I still wasn't sure because the money was so small, didn't get paid a lot. And a friend of mine was a truck driver and he made five times more money. So I said, And maybe, not only that, he ate his steaks well done. Yeah. <laughs> so I said, maybe I'm going to do that just because of the money. But when I was in South of France in a restaurant called Beaumanier, there the owner was 72 years old. And he had this passion for cooking. He had six gardeners. Uh, he had a lot of land, so they grew all the vegetables there. He had olive orchard. He had a vineyard. So he did uh, made his own olive oil and so forth. But what was amazing with him, he was a president of an insurance company, but he always loved to cook. So one day he says, okay, I'm going to follow my passion. And then he opened this restaurant called Beaumanier. And by the time he was... Uh, 58 years old, he had a, a three-star restaurant, the highest accolade you could get in France for a restaurant is three stars in the Guide Michelin. And uh, so it shows that if you have passion and you love something, that you really can excel at whatever age it is. Now, I tell everybody, you have to have imagination and the techniques you can learn them as you go along, so that's not as uh, difficult. But, but imagination is uh, very few people have it. Can you can you have can you develop the nuances of imagination if you don't know the basics? Like you knew the basics so well, what seasonings will go with what seasonings? How to cut all the different? Not that cutting is such an amazing skill, but you learned all these extreme basics. 
those are like the the tools, the the building blocks of imagination. Can you have that imagination without the building blocks? You know, you have to know a little bit for sure. But like, for example, my son Byron is uh, 23 years old. He graduated from Cornell. And I went to Cornell. Oh, yeah. Good job. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so now I send him to restaurants to learn how to cook because at Cornell, the hotel school there is not for cooking, you know. It's but a very good hotel school. Very good hotel school. The best one in the world probably or the most famous one yeah. in the world. And now I send him to places like uh, in Spain with the Roca brothers. I send him to Paris with Guy Savoy. He worked with Eric Ripper here in New York. So... I wanted him to see how really the upscale people, upscale restaurant, upscale chefs work for the imagination. So now he's cooking for us in our small restaurant. I have a little restaurant called Rogue. They are the only self in Los Angeles and we only serve 10 people a night. So I have two sh two main chefs and then I have two or three chefs from our other restaurants. So, so wait, wait. Steve, where when we go to LA in April, are we gonna eat at Rogue? Are we? Oh, you have to. Can you hook that up? <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, but to be fair, your son grew up with Wolfgang Puck, so it's not like as if he started from zero in cooking. Yeah. No, that that might have helped a little bit, or maybe it's a little bit in the genes or something. I don't and, know. And then you, and then what you did, and then what your son is now doing is to associate themselves with the best chefs in the world. You were. Uh, you, at a very early age, decided, okay, I'm not just an apprentice in Austria. I'm going to go to France, find someone who's going to be among the best chefs in yeah. the world. Maybe you didn't know it at the time, but you found yourself apprenticing and learning from, I think I think part of a, of skill development is attaching yourself to someone who's, let's say, in the top 20 in the world and yeah. learning from that person. Do you think that speeds the learning process? Yeah, no, no. I think, but for me, more important, you know, I said, I want to cook like this guy is cooking. You know, not only was he a great chef, but he owned a restaurant. At that time, very few chefs owned their own restaurant. You know, they're working for somebody, for some hotel or for some guy who was in a beautiful suit out in front and like, like a Medadi type guy. But chefs were not known to own restaurants. But he was the first one I saw. Well, he's the chef. He owns his own restaurant. I still remember him bringing Picasso into the kitchen and Picasso looking, I was making a duck sauce and we made it this red color and Picasso comes up and almost wanted to put his finger to taste it. And I said, no, no, it's hot. Don't put your finger in there. And uh, he said, oh, but the color is so beautiful. So I think some of these things are still in my head like if, if it was yesterday. Well, and you know, that that's fascinating because obviously Picasso is sensitive to colors, created 60,000 works of art. So he's sensitive to the nuances of color. And, you know, color also is this expression of, of nature and how close a food might be to nature. Uh, it loses its color the further away it gets from nature. And maybe, maybe again, and you speak about the role of color in serving a dish. And maybe discuss that for a second, because I think that's part of how your process works. Yeah, I think it's a whole combination. You know, it's we eat with our eyes first, so mm -hmm. it has to look good. Now the nose first? Yeah, no, first the eyes, and then you smell the food, and then you taste it, you know. So I think to me, it is really important that the food looks good. Now, food looks good to me is not when you manipulate it, if it if food looks good when it is what it really is, so you can is so you can see the essence of what the beautiful green bean is, or a scallop is, or whatever it is. So, but it, I think to me, you don't have to do much. 
We have to enhance what we do. Obviously, that's what we do in the restaurant. But you want to taste what the food tastes like. You don't want to eat something and say, what the heck is that? You know, it is not. For me, if I eat a fish, I want to taste the way this fish tastes. So to do that, it has to be really fresh. It has to be cooked the right way. The technique is very important. I think, I think, and you discussed this in your masterclass, I think the seasonings, because um, you, you focus a lot on the seasonings, and yet it says a certain simplicity. You're not trying to change the flavor of something. You're trying to enhance the flavor, I feel. Exactly, so yeah. So like with, with, with uh, I think it's the Branzini um, class, yeah. or one of the classes, it's you, 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 you just talk about salt, pepper, lemon to enhance the flavor, just the right you know, amounts of those. Yeah. Uh, but And yet at the same time, seasoning is very important to you. So what's... I, and I kind of want to get into something you said earlier about ownership, but, but I want to hear about seasoning too, because that's like a, such a big focus in your in your recipes. Exactly. But everything is really simple. For example, if you want to season a piece of meat or fish, and like I like pepper, white one, uh, black pepper, whatever it is, but a lot of people, and you can go to your supermarket, you get this ground pepper in a little can, and you know what? The pepper has no flavor. So if you toast the peppercorn a little bit, put the, heat them up in a pan or put them in the oven, and then you grind them, put it in a pepper grinder, and you grind them, you get this aroma, and you say, oh, my God, I didn't know pepper can be have such a great smell, not just on your tongue, but the whole kitchen will smell like pepper. But this is how stupid I am. That's this is the first time I realized peppercorn is pepper. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, oh, it doesn't, steak it with doesn't, peppercorn sauce, done. Oh, then put some pepper on it. Yeah. I thought it was two different things. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. A lot of people think, you know, that's where it come, how it comes. Like, uh, I know uh, one of the kids uh, uh, who goes to school with my son, who used to go to school with my son. So we, he came to our restaurant and uh, he said, is that fish? And it was like a a whole black bus, I think. So, and uh, he thought, you know, I never see fish like that. I said, so how you see the fish? He says, no, they are always brown and rectangular. You know, so his mother made That's him how it's fish. Born. Yeah, his, his, his mother made him fish sticks. So it's uh, he thought that's what fish is all about. So it's funny how in America, and I guess the world in general, in order to feed a world of 7 billion people, you do have to take shortcuts and process food so as to feed the masses. But, you know, so that kind of removes it from from the art form or from the natural ingredients because not everybody in the world has natural ingredients in their backyard, unfortunately. Yeah, I think, I think you know, we can help ourselves a lot. And there is a thing like for fast food, for canned food or frozen food, for sure. You know, how you're going to eat? Not everybody can afford to go to a restaurant. Not everybody can afford really the best vegetables or whatever, whatever is really, really just perfect. So I think there is a balance in life, but wherever you can, even today, if you go to Walmart, they have a fresh produce section. You can buy the produce there. Now, does it going to be like the Produce like we have here at Cut, for example, where I send it from California from the farmer's market to our restaurant. No, it doesn't going to have the same flavor if you get it from some of the supermarket for sure. But I think it's better than not having vegetables at all. You know, so I think there is a certain balance, and you have to get the right ingredients if you are not that rich. You know, if you don't have the money to buy, you can get it still a good deal. You know, and and I, I want to um. Veer and a little into you know you mentioned you know many chefs 
uh, don't own restaurants or, or didn't back then. And, and it's still true now. Uh, and, and, and I think that became the seeds of what became a, a multi-billion dollar business empire plus the success of, of your brand. But was there ever a point when you were like, ugh, you know, I did cooking for 10 years and now I'm just going to try something else. And you've expressed interest in painting, music. So you're, you're an artist. So have you ever thought like, okay, I did this for 10 years. I'm still in my 20s. I'm going to do something else. I think I think uh, I never thought once I came to America or even in France after working in South of France, I thought this is what I was born to do. You know, you felt that. How yeah. did you feel that? I because like my whole body, my whole spirit changes when I'm in the kitchen or when I'm at the farmer's market. I tell my wife all the time. I said, you know, going shopping for me to a clothes store or whatever store it is. It's a pain. I hate it. You know, like you walk up and down here, Madison Avenue, and look at all the stores. I don't mind if it's a sunny day just to walk, but then going in the store and trying to find something, I hate that. But going to the vegetable, to the farmer's market or to the fish market, I love, I could spend hours there and it makes me happy. So let's say uh, I'm 50 years old. I'm working in a cubicle at some big company. I feel mildly unhappy that I spent the first, last 30 years of my life, you know, making pay, paying the bills and just doing enough to get by. And I want to find my, I'm listening to this. I clearly hear the passion in, in Wolfgang Puck's voice, but I didn't love anything at the age of 14. How do I start to find my, my love right now? Well, I really believe if you have a passion for something, if you love theater, if you love radio, if you like TV, if you like to paint or if you like to sing, whatever it is, I think you should work on that really. And if you're passionate about something, you will spend a lot of hours doing it and then you actually can get pretty good. But you've spent 54 years cooking. How Again, I'm pretending to be the 50-year-old in the cubicle. How am I going to... How am I going to put in enough time? I'm never going to be the best in the world, maybe not, but how can I put in enough time that it's really worthwhile to me, that I can make an impact? Well, I really How can I cut the corners? You know, there is no cutting off the corners. You know, passion is important, obviously, and then repeat and doing things and doing things. You know, you can become a chef if you really love to cook, if you really not love... Me. I, I can't. Okay, <laughs> you are the perfect guy for me because if not, we wouldn't have restaurants, if we wouldn't have people like to... I don't want everybody just to cook at home, but everybody has to cook sometimes at home, you know, and do something. And that's one of the reasons I did like uh, the masterclass because I want people to learn a few basics. And then if you know a few basics, you can do a lot. Like for example, uh, uh, making a bechamel, which is a, a cheese sauce basically. So my mother used to make it all the time. So she put a little butter in a pan with a little flour and then bring some milk to a boil and then put the milk over that and make like a, a sauce and then add some cheese to it or just a little nutmeg, salt and pepper and then from there, she made creamed spinach because we had spinach in the garden. Or she made macaroni and cheese because pasta was cheap So and then just baked in the oven. Now, sometimes we went in the forest, gathered some wild mushrooms. She chopped them up and put them into the macaroni. So it was always a little different. Sometimes a little ham left over. She chopped up the ham and put it in there. So it was not expensive, but it tasted really good. But and, she knew the basics. And... and a, I love hearing you talk about recipes because that's really where, like, we could talk about billions of dollars worth of stuff, but you're talking about your the 
the cheese recipe. It's it's all ingredients from a, a thirty foot radius of your house. You just described ingredients that are green, yellow, red. Like it's so it's it's this beautiful panache on the yeah. plate. Uh, so let's let's fast forward. You're 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 working at a, a top for a top chef in France. You must have been learning so much. If, uh, obviously, the south of France is beautiful, and then you made. Of course, the most incredible decision of your life, which is to move from the most beautiful area in the world to Indianapolis, yeah, uh, in the middle of the United States, to work at a restaurant. Why the hell did you do that? Well, <laughs> I loved auto racing. You know, Indianapolis is famous for the five hundred miles every May they run them. So when I lived, you're like twenty two years old or yeah, whatever. I, I used to live in Monaco, and I loved the Grand Prix they have there, the Formula One race, the Rally Monte Carlo. So. When somebody offered me a job in Indianapolis, and I said, "Wow, I have to go to Indianapolis. It might be like Monaco, like Monte Carlo." I said, "So you were stupid." Yeah, <laughs> I, I had no. I didn't look where. First of all, I didn't look where it was exactly. I know it was somewhere <laughs> in the middle of nowhere, and then I never looked at the picture or whatever what it can look like. So when uh, I took the Greyhound bus from New York City to Indianapolis, and it took forever to get there, and I said, "Oh my God, where's Indianapolis?" On the cart, like I saw at the Greyhound station, they had the map of America. I said, oh, it's not that far. But then it took like, I think, 36 hours or something like to get there. And each time I fell asleep, woke up and said, I ran up to the driver and said, are we in Indianapolis? And, and then I arrived there and said, shit, that's Indianapolis. It has nothing to do with Monte Carlo. So, you know, the south of France. And, but I had no money left. So I had to start work there. I got my green card there. And I actually had a nice time because the people in the Middle West are really nice. So, and you, and you probably learned how to basically take that palate, which was very kind of a honed down palate versus what you were used to in France, yeah. and kind of make them enjoy. Like it was probably a pleasure for you to see their pleasure, the differences in the food you were making. Yeah, but the only thing I hated there was I had to cook all the steaks well done. I think in one year I cooked more steaks well done than than in the rest of my career. I said. Why you wanna eat a steak if you wanna eat it well done? And so, but at the end, I have to please the customer. I had to do it. So often, I said, I'm gonna cook it medium. Maybe the restaurant is a little dark; they won't see it. Sure no, they enough, won't do it. The steaks come. The steak comes back and said, "I want it well done. That's not well done." Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over a hundred or two hundred different Airbnbs over a three year period, and I loved it. I love. I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house. I, of course, the first thing I thought was, I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests? And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb. 
while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use HIMS for now. Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMS app track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I 
how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. HIMS.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See HIMS.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. You mentioned earlier many chefs don't own their restaurants. And I think then, I mean, there was even a movie chef about yeah. the conflict between um, the chef in this movie and how he felt he was an artist, but the owner is so concerned about sh the sh short term pleasing uh -huh. the customer that the chef can't really let his art come out. He can't really choose for what himself to what yeah. to do. And so I think you probably felt that urge early on. You wanted to, to ch you wanted nobody to tell you what to make. And so you went at Ma Maison, which was the first major restaurant in LA you worked for. Yeah. Uh, you you negotiated ownership, but then eventually you took complete ownership of your own restaurant, Spago, which became maybe the most famous restaurant in the world. While, while from 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 start to now, yeah. Uh, uh, what was what was that urge of ownership? What you, what what clicked your business sense in? This is now now you went from being chef to businessman. Yeah. Well, I think I always wanted to do be in charge of my own destiny. So when I Why? was because most when, people don't. Yeah, because when I was at Ma Maison, for example, even I was a part owner, the owner Patrick did not really trust me. So he had the made conflict. Yeah, it was a conflict and he was jealous of me too. So for example, when he went on vacation, he didn't uh, I didn't sign the check. So that was the old style, you know, everything was handwritten, every order, there was no computers, nothing. So uh, but he didn't trust me. And I said, how can you not trust me? I run at least 70% of the business's food. The other one is liquor and wine and so on. So I said, how come he doesn't trust me to sign a check? So I was really very intrigued by that, that he had somebody else do that. I said, I could look at the check. I know if I bought that or not. You know, somebody else would just sign it without looking at it. And so I always dreamt going back to South of France to, to Raymond Tullier, the chef at Beaumanier. I said, I want to be like him. I want to own the restaurant. I want to go see the customers in the dining room. So and feel like it's your place. Yeah, so you feel like it's your place and you can do the way you please, really. Now, obviously, you have to make it into a business because if you do the way you please and you have no customer, it won't work. So you have to make the customers happy and I think that's one of the reasons I love the food because there's nothing better seeing happy customers coming back years after years after years all the time. So when I opened Spago finally in January uh, 1982, and uh, it became this huge success, Swifty Lazard did the Oscar parties with all the big stars of the old time from Elizabeth Taylor to... Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart and you name them, they came all to the restaurant. So let me ask you about that. You, you start Spago, becomes a huge success. I'm going to ask you about that. But a lot of times people say the success of a restaurant is not based on the food, but based on the Rolodex of the owner. If you can fill it up with the right people in the first few weeks, it gets that buzz and it's the buzz starts going. Now, ultimately, the food has to stand on its own. But the first thing is is the Rolodex. Is that true? or? Well, it is partly true in a lot of restaurants, you know, where the owner or the maitre d' has a big Rolodex, the people will come. At the end of the day, to have a sustainable business in the long run, the whole experience has to be great. The food has to be good, the service has to be good, the environment. 
So to me, it's like an experience. I don't go to a restaurant just to nourish myself. To me, it's an experience. And I think being successful in the long run, if you don't have good food, there are a few exceptions out there in LA too. But for example, with Spargo, which we are open now 36 years, last year was our best year we ever had. Now, you know in New York, from the Four Seasons restaurant to Lutez to La Caravelle, all these famous restaurants are gone. The mortality rate of the restaurants, I think it's uh, really, really high up there among any businesses. And there's very few restaurants who survive a generation, you know, where the next generation takes them over and they're still successful. And you look at restaurants like Le Cirque, you know, Sirio certainly knew everybody in this city. If the king of Spain came, he went there. Kissinger went there. Actors went there. So they all went to Le Cirque. It was famous for lunch. But then his kids took over, but not really. I think he still was like there all the time. And, you know, they had to close Le Cirque now. So What do you think? Because like when I think Le Cirque, I do think, oh, okay, a little old school versus newer restaurants. But do you think it's also the fact that uh, the the same passions weren't there at the end that were there at the beginning? Well, I think Sirio got old and I think the kids, uh, I don't know, didn't have the same passion or sometimes see like an owner wants to be so on top of it all the time and doesn't want to give up power to the kids. And I really think, you know, if you have a, a, a kid who is uh, 30, 35 years old, I started my restaurant when I was 30, and at Mamezoma, I was the chef and partner when I was 25. So why wait until 40? I think it's important to have, if you have children, if you want them to be in your business, to let them go out and know how hard it is, really, how to make a living. But then when you bring them back, you have to give them the responsibility and show them that they have to take and make decisions how to run the business part or how to... That's really hard. It's much different than cooking or would you say there are similarities? I don't know. Well, I think in life there are a lot of similarities and I, for once, you know, like my son hopefully will take over the restaurant. So that's why I send him to great restaurants to learn from other people. Then in about two or three years, by the time he's 27, maybe I'm going to... Uh, finance a little restaurant for him, and then he's gonna learn how to learn how to run one small restaurant, and then maybe he's gonna come and work with me in the restaurant. So I think I think um, kind of this apprenticeship aspect, uh, like you're sending him around now. Yeah. To first off, you taught, taught taught him hospitality by sending him to Cornell, a great school for hotels. Uh, then you send him around to the major restaurants, so he gets apprenticeships with the greatest chefs, uh, and then you start him off small with his first restaurant yeah. before you bring it. What, what's his first name? Byron. Byron? Yeah. You, he, you didn't name him Johan or something like that? No, or no, no. no. I don't, we're in America, no. <laughs> My mother named me Wolfgang because she saw that she loved Mozart. So I think... Uh, and you love music. Like Cut, there's Pink Floyd playing. So. I know. I love me. I like all kinds of music. Like at Cut, when we opened the first Cut, I said, I want to be in charge of everything. So not only just the food and the environment, obviously, uh, the artwork we have in the restaurant, but also the music. Because sometimes I was like at Spago in uh, Beverly Hills and I said, I don't know why we play this music. This is not something I would play in my home. This is not something I would play for pleasure. It sounds like elevator music. So, And could you take, you owned it, could you take control? Yeah, you so felt like you were because I owned it, I said, you know what? 
I love rock and roll. Now, I don't like it to be played like in a discotheque, you know, where you go for dancing, where the beat is so loud that you cannot talk. I want, though, in the background to hear great music. And I still remember when I opened Cut and Bruce Willis come, came to the restaurant and then he had a steak. He always ate a bone-in filet and he had a bottle of Vega Cecilia, very expensive Spanish wine. And then he calls me over so seriously and uh, he said, Wolfgang. And he says, Wolfgang, who chooses the music here? And I said, maybe he doesn't like it. Pink Floyd was playing the wall. And uh, I said, well, I do. And he says, you know, Wolfgang, there's nothing better eating a bone-in filet with a gl great glass of red wine and listening to the wall from Pink Floyd. So, so I said, oh, thank you. So it's almost like, again, like you, you put it, I wouldn't listen to this at home. I wouldn't eat this if it wasn't a greedy around my home. Yeah. It's you're bringing almost the home into the restaurant, and that's part of the success of these things. But at the same time, how do you avoid... You know, you have to build a business. You have to build a hundred different restaurants. How do you avoid the micromanaging of these details? Like, didn't uh -huh. someone else want to choose the music? Didn't someone else want to do other things at the restaurant? You can't do everything. Okay, so let me set you an example. For example, when I opened Cut here and down in downtown in, in Manhattan, what did I do? So I have a chef, Raymond. He's very talented. If not, I wouldn't have put him here. He's with me for 10 years. And he's like in his early 30s now. So I said, okay, uh, Raymond, here are the boundaries. You have to have some steaks on the menu because this is what we do. But if you go to the fish market, you buy the uh, best fish there is. We don't have to have Dover sole if there is not really the best one if you have to buy it frozen. Get some skate wings, get some striped bass, or get some black bass, whatever is really good. So you can really invent what you like to cook the way you like invent. it you know you trained with me you know what i like so don't go out of these boundaries but go and uh, find the best ingredients possible so now we have a menu which has its core which is a lot of meat but also all the appetizers the side dishes the fish dishes he can do whatever is the best so i told him and I tell every chef the same thing. I said, you know, you try to buy the best ingredients and then try not to screw them up. So just enhance them. So best ingredients, but then also it sounds like you really taught him how to use his imagination within those parameters. Yeah. And he, I bet you he can go a little bit out of those parameters and you would you would taste it, you would be he would do a good job. Yeah, you know what? As long as it tastes good. Like he made uh uh made uh, the last week a skate uh the skate is a really good fish, you know, it, it fits really fresh, a skate wing. And then uh, it was like an Asian flavor. And, you know, did it fit 100% in the concept? No. But it tasted really good. I said, why you don't put it on a menu when it's fresh like that? It was delicious. So I let him to do and express his style a little bit too. But he cannot go out and change the whole restaurant because it has to have a certain core. But the rest, I love when young chefs are inventive. I love when young chefs use their mind. And also, I believe if they have a lot of, if they have talent, I have to give them some freedom to do their own thing because I want them to own the place. You know, right, you want them to feel that ownership that you yeah, are lacking, exactly. and that's an important thing when scale, when building a business that's scalable. You still have to give that second tier that you've trained. You have to give them the freedom to feel like owners. Yeah, and so. But 
you say it has to stick to the core because there is your 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 name is not just a name; it's a brand. It's a billion dollar brand. So, what is that core? You always have to have a, a mission statement in some sense, a core statement. What's what's your core? Well, for me, my core is always you know we are here to make the customers happy. So it is not about me; it is about the experience of the customer and. We have to have a sustainable business. So then, if I don't, if I train the people right in the front of the house and the back of the house, or if it's the sommelier who recommends wine, anybody can say, "Okay, drink a bottle of Chateau Lafitte and then spend a thousand dollars on a bottle of wine." That's not uh, the sommelier's job. The sommelier's uh, job is and comes up to the table or whatever, and if he knows the guests and feels out the guests a little bit and say. I have this red wine coming from Spain, who is a, which is amazing. You should try that with the steak; it's delicious and it's priced reasonably. So you're gonna say, "Oh God, this guy is really smart. He recommended a wine. It was delicious. Goes well with the dish, and it didn't break the bank." So, 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 so the core almost seems like bring home into the restaurant, but enhance it, and then have a conversation with the customer. So, yeah. and and show a real care for them. Like, okay. You're gonna establish yourself as an expert. Look, we just got this new thing, this wine coming in. Might be good for you. Don't break the bank, because if they if you break the bank, they can't come back anyway. They can't yeah. afford it. And and you want them more than them spending money. You want them also to spread the word, and uh, so that their friends come. Uh, but uh, but I do the same thing with the chef too. For example, Raymond will bring a big uh, piece of wood and have all the best cuts of meat he just got in. For example. And brings it out to the guest and says, "Look how mm. beautiful this steak looks! Beautifully marbled. And look, this one is from a different part. It might be grass-fed, and it comes from uh, Nebraska. And so we have beef come from different places. And so when you look at it and said, "Oh my God, this looks good! I'm gonna have that just grilled over charcoal. We have a big charcoal grill there, and just seasoned with salt and pepper. I don't even need a sauce with it. Like for example, there's a famous French sauce called sauce Bernays." And uh, I dipped the French fries in there. So I said, I want the, really the taste of the meat. If you buy a good piece of meat, it has delicious flavor. If it's cooked right, seasoned just perfect, just with a little salt and some fresh black pepper. And I think it comes out really, really good. You don't need much. It's simple, but perfect. It's so funny. Uh, there's so many directions we could go, but you love talking recipes. Like, it's yeah. great. You could The sheer love for, for cooking comes out. So... Spago is a success because you have this this core philosophy. You you've learned through at that point you've learned for sixteen years how to run a restaurant, how to cook, uh, how to you know season, how to use the right ingredients. You're you're a master chef by this point. Um, you have the Rolodex. How did you? Obviously, you're a charismatic guy. How did you start bringing in the celebrities? Because uh, you know authority, meaning the celebrities coming in, is a great way to drive the, the next level of people yeah. that, that and you you cater the oscars like you clearly have a deep understanding of how of the the power of authority to drive business well i think it's also important not only what you serve who is coming to your restaurant for sure but sometimes you don't know who the people are you might come to the restaurant and the people might look at you and says well i don't know if this guy fits into this restaurant oh they always look at me that way yeah <laughs> so i think it's really sometimes if you're not famous, you don't know what they're. They might be famous in some other profession. You know, if a famous artist walks in, you probably don't recognize him and who they because they're not on TV, they're not in the movies, but it's still an important 
uh, person in their own field. Like I love art. I mean, except for Andy Warhol, Andy Warhol most of the artists, you could, wouldn't recognize them. People wouldn't know except the very few people. So I think at Spargo, when we started out, I remember still when <coughs> we did the Oscar party with Swifty Lazar. But even before that, all of a sudden, I was friendly with Orson Welles. He used to eat lunch every day with me, like with Billy Wilder, who I loved, uh, he, the movie director and writer and everything. So naturally, when he came, I cooked him some Austrian dishes, but he brought in uh, Gregory Peck, he brought in uh, uh, Sidney Poitier, you name them. They used to have a table, I remember uh, when I opened Spargo, so Billy Wilder has a table of 12 people and all big stars. So, so how did he first even know to come to the restaurant? Like I knew him from Maison uh. because he still, he's from Austria, so I used to make him as a joke some Austrian dishes like Wiener Schnitzel or like the Kaiserschmann or Palatschinken and he loved that attention and he thought it was something special because it reminded him of his childhood too. And so we formed this bond. I used to go to his house. His wife used to cook uh, uh, Austrian dishes too. She used to cook from my first cookbook. I remember having pork chop with a warm uh, uh, cabbage salad the way we do it. So it was, I think... And, for me then really in the restaurant, for him bringing all these famous people in. Now naturally, everybody was looking and said, wow, look at that, there's Sidney Poitier and Gregory Peck over there. That must be the right place to go. Now do they know more about food than the other people? Probably not, but they're so recognizable and I think it helps to establish and make a restaurant successful. Because so, so, so on the one hand, you're looking at every detail, the music, the paintings on the wall, the food, the seasonings, everything, you know, the natural ingredients, everything from homecoming to the restaurants. But then you spent years at Ma Maison building these very impressive bonds with the people you loved. It doesn't yeah. sound like you went out of your way to, to bond with people you didn't like. You you bonded with the people you personally loved, but they were but they also had status to, to help you with your next yeah. ventures. And now your name itself is a brand. So people say, oh, Wolfgang Puck, I'm going to that restaurant. They may not even know anything about the restaurant, but they'll go, you're you're the celebrity brand. And and you were able to do that. Like you started doing books, you you started catering the Oscars. You've been in so many shows, you've you know, not just cooking shows, but other shows. Uh you you've built a brand and celebrity around yourself. So that's important as well. Like kind of aiming your like now you're doing this master class, which is very valuable to people. So so building Putting yourself in many different venues is also really important to your business strategy, it sounds like. You know, it is certainly because of television, you know, all of a sudden people start to know the chef, what they look like, you know. And I think for me now when I'm at the restaurant, like even here, so people come up and say, can I take a picture? Because everybody has an iPhone now, so it's easy to take a picture. And, you know, it would be stupid for me to say, no, 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 no pictures. You know, first of all, they will get upset because... I tell everybody, no, it's not an answer. So if I start to say no, the next level of my people who work in the restaurant mm. would say no. So that's Everything comes from the top down in business. Yeah. And then I think these people are going to go home and say, look at that. I was at Cut in uh, Manhattan and I saw Wolfgang there. Look, I have a picture to show you. And all they tweeted to their friends. So I think to me, it's a whole package, you know. And today, it's a lot. The customer become... Uh, you are publicists in a way because they will tell other people through pictures and the most important thing is still word of mouth. Because they, it's not just that they're trying to inform a group of strangers, hey, 
uh, go to this restaurant, they look good when they have a picture with you at your restaurant. Like it may, it's their status goes up. So then, then people want to go. Yeah, I think I think it's a good combination, and I think in a way, even sometimes it bothers me if you take a lot of pictures, you know. But uh, it bothers my eyes mostly. But I think when you look at it as a business strategy. It's a good strategy. Why say no when people want really to tell a story about my restaurant? So that way it will bring in more people. And I think that's really an important part. And that's why I love to go to the restaurant. I love to be in the kitchen, but I also like to be with the people in the dining room. So so let's talk about the kitchen for just one second. Um, you love music. You have music playing in the restaurant, but you don't have music playing in the kitchen because you don't want to ruin the focus of uh, all the chefs and sous chefs and so on. Uh, uh, how important is this feeling of flow uh, for cooking? Well, I really believe when I'm in the kitchen, I want to really focus 100% of what I'm doing. So I don't want to be disturbed by anything. There's enough noise already going on in the kitchen. You know, people are yelling and everything is under pressure. You know, everything has to be ready at a certain minute, a certain time. If you have a table of six people, each one orders a different thing, so they all have to come out at the same time, be ready at the same time. So there's a lot of really interesting things going into. You know, people don't know in a dining room how how does it happen really. And I think uh, to me, it's like a music. You know, it's like an orchestra in a way. Mm. Everybody has to play to the same uh, uh, sheet of music. Everybody has to know how you want it played. And I think and the and, chef's the conductor. And the chef is the conductor. So you have to tell people, okay, I need this steak here. I need the the fish for this table. Fire it now because we're gonna need it in ten minutes. You know how long it takes. So it's really a hard thing to put everything together. And, and, you know, what else, like you, you obviously, you know, again, we're so passionate about cooking, but now it's like frozen foods, uh, hundreds of restaurants, like what made you, I mean, did you just sort of say, okay, every single reasonable opportunity I'm going to explore and go towards like what, what drove your business empire? Because it be, it became much more than just being a chef. Like you're really more of an empire than a chef. Yeah. Well, I really, I don't think so. I think my passion is still food, whatever. Obviously, yes. Uh, but I think it's like building a wall. That's why I maybe like Pink Floyd so much, the wall. You know, it's everything is just another brick in the wall. So mm. every little thing makes the house. You know, it's not one big block. And I think even like now, when I did masterclass, for example, when I talked about them, I said, you know, this will be a good enhancement of our brand, of what I do. But, you know, it also teaches people how to cook at home, how to make better food. So for me, it was a normal extension. So, and you know, and I looked what they did and I saw Serena Williams doing tennis or Frank Gehry about architecture. So I said, you know what? They have really great people teaching other people out there about their craft. And for me, obviously, it's cooking. The good thing is you have to eat every day. So why not make yourself delicious food instead of having just uh, a store-bought sandwich. And, and it sounds like mastery for you is bringing in the best elements of other uh, disciplines. Like you just talked about Frank Gehry with architecture, Serena Williams with, with her craft, P Picasso with just looking at colors and art, your own interest in music and bringing that into the restaurant, your own interest in uh, you know painting and art and, and visuals. 
all this together kind of contributed to making you a master chef. I think that's an important lesson in mastery in general is don't just stick to learning chemistry to be a good chemist, learn the other scientific disciplines, learn yeah. art to become a good chemist. Yeah, I think, I think what really is important in life is curiosity and the willing to learn and they're willing to take some risk. You know, there's always a risk uh, involved in doing something where you need so many people. So did how I, do you know how much risk to take? Well, I think I take some calculated risk. I would know how far I'm gonna go. So for example, in the business side, if I would have to finance every restaurant with my own money, it would be very difficult because a restaurant costs a lot of money today. For example, now at the Four Seasons Hotel where Cut is, I had the Four Seasons, they need a restaurant. You know, a hotel needs a restaurant. So we made a deal with them. I own the restaurant, they run the hotel. So it's better for the guest, for the hotel guest, if they come down and go into a great restaurant. They are not the best in running restaurants. They are great in running hotels. And they know they're going to get your core philosophy of restaurants even if you've never stepped foot in that particular restaurant, they're gonna, they know it's the people you've trained, yep. they're gonna get your core philosophy, so we can trust that this brand, mean, which translates to the taste of the food, is gonna be good. Exactly, so wherever we are, wherever we open a restaurant, you know, if it's in London or in Istanbul, we manage it, I put my chefs there, my manager there, my pastry chefs there, who worked with me for at least five, six years, if not more, even, our chef, for example, in Bahrain, which is a tiny little island in the Gulf there, I have a chef there and a pastry chef there and a sous chef there who are with me for 10 years. So they run two very successful restaurants there. Now, do I tell the chef there, no, you only can cook that? No, I give him certain freedom because I know he understands the people there better than I do here. I feel there's something about imagination that I'm trying to kind of get my hands around because clearly... You're training people not to be just a good chef, but you're training them to have a specific kind of imagination. And like, like again, someone listening to this, what, what would be steps to take to improve my imagination? Well, for example, at our restaurant Rogue, I bring in the chefs from different restaurants. So they cook for 10 people. They sit right in front of them. What do I tell them? I said, I want you to cook something you never made in your life. I want, you never cooked in a restaurant. This has to be all about innovation. So then when they have to think about it, it's not that easy to think, oh, I'm going to do three dishes, small portions, something I never made. So they have to go to the farmer's market or to the fish market, pick up some ingredients, and then think what they're going to do. So now I actually know which chef has more talent, which chef has more imagination, just by doing that. And for me, I didn't start that restaurant that way, but it turned out like a perfect way because now I can evaluate talent. You know, it's easy to talk, but you have to walk the walk. So now at Rogue, when the chef, for example, the chef of Cut in Las Vegas, I thought he was very good administrative. I thought he was very good, a pretty good cook, but not the top cook. But I said, you know, to cook, in Vegas, he might be okay at the restaurant, and I needed somebody. So when he came to Rogue to cook, I said, I didn't know this guy had talent and imagination. I was so excited and so happy. What did I tell him? I said, you know what? Put these dishes on your menu or at the bar or in the restaurant. I don't care, but I think you did a great job. So now he went back, put it on the menu. The uh, manager liked it. 
The guests love it. And I think he feels so proud of it. So now I have somebody there who actually knows what I like and he builds his own identity also. And and again, how do you, I've been sitting in a cubicle for 30 years, hypothetically, how do I start to build imagination? Well, I think the good thing is today you can uh, uh, learn techniques online, but I think imagination, you have it or you don't have it. You cannot really teach imagination. You know, you look, cannot really teach, even somebody's a good musician, but to compose, it's like having imagination. It would be different. You know, it's a different kind of brain maybe than the learning the technique of it. And I think in cooking, it's the same thing. You can learn how to do the techniques. You can learn how to do certain things really through repetition very well. But to have imagination, it takes another part of the brain. And some people have it. Very few people actually have it. A lot of people are good technicians, but with no imagination. But I feel like if you're passionate about something, you could, you could say, okay, here's a fish, uh, a fish with salt and pepper. Maybe I'm going to try, even though the fish comes from, I don't know, Europe, I'm going to try to put some Japanese ingredients in it and mix cultures. And, and I love these Japanese ingredients on their fish. Maybe that's imagination a little bit, is combining two different things. Sure. I think that it's certainly an imagination and to please your own taste, which is an important part mm. if you cook. So if you like spicy food, so you add, uh, if I if you see me making a fish and you say, okay, I'm going to chop some jalapeno really fine and put it in this salsa or in this sauce or whatever you call it mm. and give it the flavor I like. Now, does that going to be a dish which everybody going to say, wow, this is the best thing in the world? Maybe, maybe not. But I think if you don't really have the passion for it, it would be very difficult to go to the next level. But if you really like food, you really like to cook, first of all, you're going to do it more often. You're going to enjoy it more and you put all your love in it. And I think you have a good chance of making sometimes things up where you said, oh my God, I didn't know I did it. For example, when I started Spago, I used to make my own smoked salmon. One day, I ran out of brioche, which we served with the smoked salmon. And we were making pizzas at Spago, you know, but different style, not like the traditional Italian. And all of a sudden, it shot into my head and I said, how about if I cook the pizza crust, maybe put some onions on it with a little olive oil, make it crispy, and then put the dill cream on top there, and then put the, uh, the smoked salmon and the little caviar on top. And then I tasted it. I said, oh, this has the yin and yang, the perfect balance, because the crust is warm, it's crispy, the smoked salmon is nice and smooth, a little salt to it with the caviar, and it worked together. And today it's probably one of our most famous dishes. Yes, I would say it was one, one it's, it is probably your most famous dish. And so many restaurants uh, have kind of copied some version of it, a, yeah. a smoked salmon pizza. And yet I feel with you, there's like an abundance of ideas. You're never worried about some other restaurant taking it because A, maybe it's not going to be as good as yours. B, you'll have more ideas. Yeah. So And it just sort of spreads the brand even further, even slightly. Um, so so uh, I, I want to be respectful of your time. I know you're, you're extremely busy. Uh, just one or two anecdotes and a question. Yeah. I, I know you've built a huge catering business. You mentioned it was like five billion a year, hospitals, schools, yeah. everything. I remember 20 years ago, I was having lunch 
with a friend of mine. I forget his last Fred, who ran Ticketmaster at the time. I forget his last name. Um, Freddie Rosen. Yeah, yeah. And he was telling me, oh, just last weekend, Wolfgang Puck came over to my house and cooked. So you, yeah. re- you started your catering business by going over to the houses of these people and cooking yourself. Totally, totally. I used to go to like Freddie Rosen, who started Ticketmaster. You're absolutely right. Or Marvin Davis, who run a big oil business and own Century Fox at that Paramount, time. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's really uh, uh, interesting. So at the beginning, I went to every house. But now I have people like where everybody uh, knows the chef. For example, my catering chef, Eric Klein, if Steve Wynn calls him up and says, come to my house and cook, and he will go to his house. And he has total confidence that he's going to do a great job. Because I always tell people, I'm not the only one in my company who can cook really well. You know, I have a lot of really great chefs working for me. You know, and for for example, here in New York, uh, Raymond, I know he can go to anybody's house. Like he told me, he went on Sunday, he did a little catering for some uh, people we know, and he went there and cooked for them, and they thought it was the best thing ever. So that, okay, so, 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 it's such a great way to start a business by being personally involved at first to see the nuances and then build up from that. And of course, you establish authority by by cooking for celebrities to spread word of mouth. Um, the other question I have, which is unrelated, what is the deal with avocado toast? It came out of nowhere. It's $20 on every menu. It's just an avocado spread over a piece of toast. What's, what's the deal? You know... People read about ingredients that they are good for you or not good for you. So remember, like a few years ago, it was all about kale. Yeah. Every menu had a kale salad. Every menu had kale on Ugh. it. And uh, uh, you said, why all of a sudden kale? But does kale going to make us live longer? Especially if it's not grown right, it doesn't make any difference. So now all of a sudden... People like in the morning, like in our on our breakfast menu, we have avocado toast, and it's the most uh, successful or the most asked uh, or most sold dish we have for breakfast. I wouldn't eat it for breakfast, but <coughs> why, why is that? Because uh, I, I don't like avocado for breakfast. I don't mind them in a salad or whatever, but I think people to have that for breakfast, they feel good about it. Now, for me. I much rather have a, a sunny side egg with a little truffle on on toast instead of an avocado. You like your white truffles, yeah? That's I your, love favorite, my, your favorite, and even the black ones too. Now the black ones are still in season, but I love the smell of it, and I still remember and I can taste it. I was in Italy in Piemonte, where the white truffles come from, with a friend of mine, with a winemaker. We went to the market for white truffles like at four in the morning. It was pitch black and everything. He knew the guy where he got them from. They have. They're white truffles because they don't want to pay taxes on it, so they have them all underneath their jackets and don't show them so nobody catches them. It's almost like drug dealers. Cuban cigars. Yeah. (laughs) And then we went to the house at 7 in the morning to his house, and then his wife made breakfast, and she made eggs with the white truffles, and we had a bottle of great red wine with it. I said, that was a perfect breakfast. But, you know, we got up at 3.30. I'm going to steal that idea. Eggs with white truffles. (laughs) And red wine for breakfast. For breakfast. I'm going to do that before every podcast. So, well, last anecdote. For the first time in 20 years, I cooked the other day. I hadn't cooked since I was in college. I'm 50 years old. I cooked the other day. and So there's hope. Yeah, there's hope. Yeah. But first thing that happened was my oven blew up because the previous uh, renters of the apartment, they never cleaned the grease at the bottom. I had never used an oven. So as soon as I put the fish in the oven... 
the whole thing blew up. I had to go to my neighbor's house to finish cooking it. But maybe this will repulse you. But I somebody online at Zabar's down the street told me this recipe because I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah. I bought some salmon and she said, use Dijon mustard, uh, brown sugar, uh, uh, wasabi, and uh, a little bit of, uh, uh, what, what did she say? Uh, maybe soy sauce? I forget now. But it was okay. I don't know. Does well, you try, you know, from my <laughs> online recipe, I think the fish is on there. It's a Veracruz-style fish where you could use, for example, you have, most of the people have onion at home. Most of you can get some capers. You can get a little olive, get some bell peppers, maybe some tomatoes in the summer. And you cook and make a sauce out of that. And then you place your salmon on top of that and put it in the oven and bake it. You don't want to bake it too long. You don't want to dry out the fish. It depends the piece, the thickness of the fish, the temperature. I like to cook it uh, at a lower temperature so that way it doesn't dry out the fish. And then you have a good flavor because you have the sauce, you have the juice of the fish who goes into the sauce. So the whole thing mixes together and you can make it for six people, Put it, just put it in a bigger pan and it's done. So if you have a party, a dinner party or the family, whatever, people are going to say, wow, how did you do that? It tastes so delicious. Well, all you did is uh, make a little sauce out of onions and capers and uh, some tomatoes. I'm going to do that. Where can I read that recipe? Well, I think you have it on, uh, on the my, masterclass. On the masterclass, so, yeah. So, so I highly recommend your masterclass, again, where you talk about cooking, res specific recipes that are so amazing, uh, your business philosophy and how it's all linked together. And I, I think people see the beginnings of that in this podcast. I also... Oh, well, not only will I recommend all your restaurants, but uh, uh, Cut, which uh, in New York City and L.A., wherever. Uh, I want to. I want to go to Cut tonight. Is it? You think? I, you think I can get a reservation? I think for you, I will find a place. If not, I just got an extra table. I push a few tables around. I get you a little. Uh, How do I do? I'm gonna bring a friend. I'm gonna take a date. Okay, you bring a date. Uh, then you for sure you're gonna get a table. Okay, you, you, it's not that crowd. I don't. Who no, no, it's it's very busy. It's good to make a reservation for sure. Uh, I think you know, the restaurant is full all the time. The bar is great. We have a great cocktail program. If you were just uh, in the neighborhood down there and a lot of neighbors actually come, a lot of people live around there, they come to the bar. Like last night I went to the bar, talked to a customer, a fairly young gentleman, and he was sitting there with a lady and he said, this is the best place to eat a hamburger. He said, I come twice a week. When I want a hamburger, I come to the bar, I cut, it's the best thing. So of course, I don't want to take advantage of the fact that you're on my podcast and 300,000 people are potentially listening but if it's full, how can I use your name to get Oh, that? you just tell them uh, you're a friend of Wolfgang. All right. A few other people might say that too, but it's okay. But you know what is important? You go the first time, then you talk to the manager or you talk to the chef. And then they know you already. You said, give me your business card and your phone so I can call you. Now, it's always easier if you're with a bigger group to make reservations in advance. But if not, once you know the people, it's much easier to get a table. Like. Yeah. You wouldn't say no to somebody, you know, you know already. So I tell everybody when they ask me, what is your favorite restaurant? I tell them it's the restaurant where I'm the best known. I like that. And I think that's really an important part. So if you like a restaurant, go a few times, you know, that way people know you and uh, they say, oh, James is coming again tonight. You, so we, you, we know what he eats. So then we know what he drinks. So you sit down 
and your favorite uh, Negroni or champagne or whatever comes to the table and they say, thank you for coming. You feel good already. You're so right. Like my, I like a restaurant that's about a block away. So for Christmas, I gave all the hostesses a tip just because I've been going there so much. And I always treat everybody really well. I go there a couple times a week. And now when I call for reservation, they like, oh, they recognize my voice. Oh, James Alistair, of course, come on in. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, well, we have a table for you. And if you bring some business people or whatever, so you walk in, they recognize you by your name. Already, you feel better, you know? Yeah. Not like if you go to a restaurant and they start to look, what is your name, sir? What is your name? How you spell it? And everything. So... It's already a pain in the neck that, that from the beginning on, you know. So it's already you don't feel as good. So I tell everybody, you know, you have to welcome the people like they are in your house. You do, know? Do, do you have your people Google the potential uh, reservation so they know extra about the customers? I think I think a lot of them do. I'm not a computer guy, so but I think. Everybody looks for everything, you know, and if they are not sure who is this customer, I'm sure they Google it up so it's easy to find out about everybody, what people do and uh, so forth. So I think we also are trying to have a whole system now in our restaurant that, for example, if we have a customer who is in London, he's a very good customer cut in London, and then he comes to New York and he wants to go to cut in uh, New York because they treat him well in London and everything. But then in uh, New York, if uh, nobody will know him, he might not even get a table. So now if somebody calls up, I want them to, they can go on the computer, the name comes up right away, and they said, okay, this is a very important customer from London. Naturally here, they will do the same thing then and say, okay, Mr. So-and-so, just come in. What time would you like to come in? We have a table waiting for you. I feel like this is a great uh, potential product, a reservation system that not only ties in with the reservation systems of your other restaurants, but maybe um, ties in with ad networks so we can see what this potential customer has searched for, has, yeah. You know what his demographics are, what his potential income is, what kind of food potentially he might like, uh, yeah. just in case that's available. Uh, I, I think, think it's all about the data, you know, all this whole online thing, it's all about data. And I think that way you can serve the customer better. So it is a tool. We don't have the data running our business. We run the business, but the data it's is a tool. a tool to help us to do a better job and make the customers happy. Well, Chef Wolfgang Puck, I almost feel funny calling you chef because it's you're so beyond that. But uh, You can call me cook, it's okay. Cook? You well, know, I, I tell you one more story. So when yeah. I came to Indianap uh, Indianapolis, I was like 24 years old and I always loved auto racing. No, that was actually from Indianapolis. We went to Los Angeles. We go to a club with Nicky Lauda because we had a race there in, uh, in Long Beach. And uh, I go to a club at night. I ask a girl to dance and we dance. Then the slow dance comes. We dance with her, the slow dance. And then she asked me naturally, what do you do? And I said, I'm a cook. She said, a cook? The song was over. She took off. She left me in the dance floor and said, "Okay, cook, forget it. I don't want to. I don't want to be with the cook." And that certainly has changed now. Today, you know, if somebody says I'm a cook or I'm a chef, no girl will run away because all of a sudden chefs have become uh, a very sought-after profession. Cooking has become the thing to do because it's because it's amazing craft and art, and also chefs have become owners. Yeah, so, and, and on top of it, all these things on television. Mm. you know, help the chef to get notoriety and people know, recognize the face. So, but I think I still remember that uh, scene and it was like in a movie, she said, a cook, and then uh, she took off. 
Well, don't take off if you're dancing with a chef. I think that's almost like the, the name of a song almost. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much, uh, Wolfgang Puck. This is such a pleasure and I, I learned so much and I hope everyone else did. And and if you like this episode, uh, subscribe to the James Altucher Show on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks again, Cook Wolfgang Puck. I really appreciate it. And I'm going to cut tonight. So All right. We'll see you there. At yeah. cut. I will be cooking. Oh, excellent. You, you like meat? I like fish. Fish. Oh, perfect. You ha- I'm going to make you taste a few different fish, like maybe a little skate wing, maybe a little lobster just cooked perfectly. What's the best time to uh, to get there? Whenever you're uh, ready. All right. You tell me when it's good for you, it's good for us. I love, love, I love all fish. Okay, perfect. We have great fish too. You know, normally steakhouse, the fish is always an afterthought, but because I love fish too, and so we have always great fish right from the fish market here. Thanks so much, Wolfgang. Thank you. See you. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.